Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Social Media, Liability Shields, and You, the State of CDA Section 230. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about a topic that has been in the news all of this week and really in the months before this video, and that's the Communication Decency Act, Section 230. If you follow virtual legality at all, you saw us discuss this briefly when we talked about Facebook changing its violence policies earlier this week to allow for death threats against certain people that it deemed fit to have those death threats issued against. And Section 230 came up because it's a very particular hot button topic. It allows a liability shield for the YouTubes and the Instagrams and the Facebooks of the world that was built maybe not for that specific purpose, but that has become the way the internet really functions. And as part of that discussion in the shadow of President Trump's and the White House's social media summit yesterday, Section 230 has become a topic of significant discussion. And in fact, the Washington Post yesterday saw fit to give editorial space to a conservative writer that talks about this very issue in a way that I don't think is terribly useful. It has some vagaries. And so I thought it was useful to have a primer on Section 230 in virtual legality on this episode because it is so important, because it is likely to be discussed for the foreseeable future and into the election in 2020, and because potentially some revisions, some amendments to that section could be useful, could be helpful to everyone. It's important to know what it does right now, to know what's a good idea and what's a bad idea. So let's take a look at that Washington Post article for just a second, because I do think there are some ambiguities here about what's said and, and how it gets it wrong. This article is called, it's an opinion, it's an editorial in the Washington Post. It's called, It's Time to Treat Tech Platforms Like Publishers. Now, as we discuss this, it's important to kind of think of the words platforms and publishers, because that's the distinction that a number of people are making as to whether Section 230 should be applied in particular to those social media outlets that take a heavier hand to the editing process, that ban people, that make certain distinctions about what's allowed on their service and what's not. And we're going to see in Section 230 that that's actually covered. That's a concept that's covered in that section. But a lot of folks, especially right now on the conservative side of the the spectrum, think that that's a problem. And this article goes on to talk about Section 230. So he talks a little bit about why it's a problem, what YouTube's doing, what Facebook is doing. You can read this article. I will link it in the description. But what we're, we're focused on here is his description of how Section 230 operates. And so I've highlighted this paragraph here, and I'll read it for you. The second obstacle to the free market is big tech's exploitation of pre-existing laws, namely Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that was passed by Congress in the 90s. Social media companies have leveraged Section 230 to great effect and astounding profits by claiming they are platforms, not publishers, thereby avoiding under the law billions of dollars in potential copyright infringement and libel lawsuits. 
YouTube, for example, advertised itself as an open platform committed to fostering a community where everyone's voice can be heard. Facebook and Twitter make similar claims. Let's be clear, when these companies censor or suppress conservative content, they are behaving as publishers, and they should be held legally responsible for all the content they publish. If they want to continue hiding behind Section 230 and avoid legal and financial calamity, they must reform. Now, this is, in the Washington Post, is a significant conservative position. And I will tell you right now, if you're watching Virtual Legality, if you're listening to this on a podcast, it's tangential to the truth. It's mostly inaccurate. And I'm trying to be generous here because I'm trying to be generous to folks that are putting forth ideas and putting forth concepts. But this isn't really how Section 230 works. And in particular, it's not really how the platform publisher distinction, if it exists at all, works. And we're going to read Section 230. We're going to take a look at the language. But the distinction between platform and publisher is essentially written in between the lines of Section 230. And that means that it's going to be a very, very hard case to make. And it's very hard to make an editorial or opinion type argument like the one that you see here in The Washington Post. And as a matter of fact, if you do a quick Google search, if you do a Bing search or wherever you do your searching and you look up Platform Publisher 230, you see a lot of discussion of this topic. You see some from the American conservative. You see some that talk about big tech, just like the Washington Post uh, in this editorial or this opinion editorial says, hey, maybe they need to decide whether their platforms are publishers. You also see kind of counter arguments. You see Tech Dirt saying, why is the Washington Post publishing blatantly false propaganda? And I'm not going to link to that story. I looked at that. Uh, And theirs is essentially the exact opposite side of the spectrum. Both sides are not terribly useful in really understanding what the language of the actual law does. But it's worthwhile to note that this is a hot topic in the news. This is one of the things that the president is really harping on. It's one of the things that we will see towards the end of this video that senators are looking at potentially amending, potentially reforming. In particular, Senator Hawley, who, if you follow virtual legality, you know is one of our favorite senators here on the channel because he introduced the loot box bill, which was so poorly written that I had to spend an hour and a half or two hours eviscerating it. And unfortunately, the law that he's come up with to amend Section 230 is of a similar stripe. Uh, And so we're going to discuss that. We're going to talk about why what he has proposed for Section 230 is a bad idea without getting too political, just as a bad idea for really both sides of the spectrum from the politics side of things. Uh, But first and foremost, we need to take a look at the law, the language itself. If you follow this channel, if you listen to me, you know I always recommend go find the primary source material. If you are reading an article about a Supreme Court decision, see if you can't find that Supreme Court decision yourself. That's why I always link these articles in the description. That's why I always link the source material in the description so that you don't have to take my word for it on how these things should be interpreted. So with that being said, let's take a look at the actual Communications Decency Act, Section 230, to talk about what it's doing and why. So first we have here, we have some findings and some policies. In the contractual legal landscape, we would probably refer to these as recitals. They're not actually operative. They're not doing anything. They're not giving rights. They're not giving obligations. They're talking about why this law exists, why this section appears the way it does, so as to give voice to somebody in the future interpreting the provisions as they see them. And this says Congress finds that the rapidly developing Internet Uh, and other interactive uh, computer services available to individual Americans represent an extraordinary advance in the availability of educational informational resources to our citizens. In other words, they're saying the internet is a good thing. These services offer users a great degree of control over the information that they receive. 
The internet and other computer services offer a forum for a true diversity of political discourse. The internet have flourished with a minimum of government regulation. Increasingly, Americans are relying on interactive media for a variety of political, educational, cultural, and entertainment services. So you put all those five findings together, which don't do anything. You can tell that just reading it. They don't make a law. They don't make any kind of right or obligation for any party, whether it's the government or an individual. And it's basically just saying, hey, the reason this law was passed is we all think the internet was a good thing. And we think the internet offers a forum for a true diversity of political discourse. This law was put in place to allow for that diversity. So you have to think about it that way. You have to think about it from that perspective. When we're talking about this discussion now in July 2019, that we're talking about amending a law that ostensibly was put in place to allow for diversity. Doesn't mean the law actually accomplishes that. And reasonable minds can differ as to whether it does what it says it's supposed to do. But the goal when this was passed was to allow diversity. And we see as we look at the language in this law, why it happens, why that diversity does flourish uh, under the law as it currently sits. The next section is policy. It is the policy of the United States to promote the continued development of the internet, to preserve vibrant and competitive free market that pre presently exists for the internet, unfettered by regulation, to encourage the development of technologies which maximize user control over what information is received, to remove disincentives for the development and utilization of blocking and filtering technologies, and to ensure vigorous enforcement of federal criminal laws to deter and punish trafficking in obscenity uh, and other bad things to do with a computer. Now, some of the obscenity stuff, this was built into the Communications Decency Act. The actual history of that act was really an attack in the 1990s to get pornography off of the internet in certain ways, a lot of which was kicked out by the Supreme Court. But that's really the background of why this law exists. And, and what we're concerned with here is they want a diversity of political discourse. They don't want the government really getting involved in what the internet service providers, what the internet platforms are doing on their sites. And they want to uh, allow them protection against what would otherwise be potentially problematic applications of slander and libel and defamation laws. So here's what they actually put in place. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. You see the links here. Those means that, that those are defined terms in this law. So what we've got here is it says no provider. We'll, we'll put aside user for a second because we're really talking about providers. No provider of an interactive computer service. That's going to be YouTube. That's going to be Facebook. That's going to be Twitter and Instagram. And we see here, if we go to the definitions, an interactive computer service means any information service system or software provider that provides or enables computer access by multiple users to a computer server, including specifically a service or system that provides access to the internet and such systems operated or services offered by libraries or educational institutions. Which is a long way of saying, hey, those, those of you who think of interactive computer services, the things that you would access through the internet, those people that provide those things, they won't be treated as the speaker of the things that appear on their service. So if you go and you say, hey, Twitter, Twitter had a real credible threat of a terrorist attack or an actual potential assassination attempt or something else really, really bad. It was on their service. They don't have the capability, really, in all honesty, of monitoring every single thing that goes on their service. It, this law says, okay, if that happens, that person that said that thing is still liable. They are the publisher or speaker. Nothing in this law changes that fact. 
But by virtue of allowing the forum to exist, by creating the technology in Twitter, in Instagram, in Facebook, or in YouTube, by making that technology, you did not take on all the liability of everyone who could possibly say something on your service. Now, that being said, we talked earlier in this video about what reads between the lines here. This says that no provider of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher. But what it probably doesn't mean, and this really hasn't been litigated all the way up to the highest levels, but what it probably doesn't mean is by virtue of the fact that you provide an interactive computer service, it doesn't mean that you are completely exempt from anything that you might otherwise actually provide as information content. So if you are the actual speaker in a way that we can interpret, it doesn't protect you by virtue of the fact that you also happen to run Twitter. Uh, so if Twitter actually puts out a tweet on its service and it's something bad, it's something libelous or slanderous, and it's Twitter that's speaking, the fact that they run an interactive computer service doesn't, doesn't protect them from the applicability of the laws that we would otherwise apply to the speakers of content. And we actually see that when we look at the definition of information content provider. Looking at that, we see the term information content provider means any person or entity that is responsible in whole or in part for the creation or development of information provided through the internet or any other interactive computer service. Here's where things get really dicey. So we've talked before in virtual legality about the fact that laws and contract terms and terms and conditions maybe aren't necessarily drafted with the hard precision of mathematics or science or coding or anything else that we might like it to be. And so we can take a look at this sentence, we can parse it out, and we can see how someone that would be inclined to do so, whether that's in the Washington Post editorial or otherwise, could say, hmm, okay, what is an information content provider? An information content provider means any entity that is responsible in part for the development of information. So they don't have to be creator, they just have to develop it. They don't have to be responsible for it entirely, they just have to be responsible for it in part. And then you start to see how the wheels got in, mo in motion for this distinction that has been put forth by a number of uh, intellectuals and non-intellectuals on the internet and elsewise as between a publisher and a platform. That you can say, okay, a publisher, which is what they mean by a provider of information content under this law, a publisher can be someone who's responsible for developing information. So if you take a heavy enough hand, if you take a heavy enough red line to the content on your service. If, for instance, we were to imagine that Facebook were to go in and delete everything that wasn't a death threat, everything that wasn't otherwise problematic, then we could probably make a case that they have so conditioned and so contoured the actual output of their site that they should be treated as having developed that information content and that they are, in fact, the personal information content provider and aren't entitled to the shield, not because they ceased being a platform, but because they are also the information content provider of that specific information that they provided the contours to. The reason that argument is so difficult to make and the reason I characterize it as mostly inaccurate when we talked about the Washington Post article is if we look at the actual operation of the next section of this law and it says civil liability, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. 
we, w we don't need to read B because that's talking about giving tools and hardware to other people to do the same thing on your service. But what's important to note here is that the actual straight line point of this law is to say not only that you won't be treated as a speaker, but that you will not be treated as a speaker by virtue of you taking a voluntary action in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material, to take a red line, to delete, to ban, all this list of things. But most broadly in this law, things that you as Facebook or Twitter or Google or YouTube find otherwise objectionable, regardless of whether they are constitutionally protected. So someone can't come to you and claim freedom of speech because that doesn't matter for virtue of your operating a company. And if you find it objectionable, really for any reason, this isn't limited to any kind of definition. Otherwise, objectionable has no basis in any kind of defined term. So it gives this broad, broad authority for Facebook or Twitter or Google or YouTube to say, okay, we're going to take a red line to this thing because we find it objectionable. Are you a climate change denier? We find that objectionable. Do you hate Hillary Clinton? We find that objectionable. Do you hate Barack Obama? We find that objectionable. Do you hate Donald Trump? Maybe we find that objectionable. And we can just strike it. And if we strike it, it was an action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to something that we found otherwise objectionable. And this says, black line, no provider of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of our doing that. So the theory of making them liable on this point rests entirely on trying to prove to a court that regardless of what this language actually says, you do it heavy enough. You make enough changes, you get biased enough, as would be described in that editorial and elsewhere on the internet, then we should be able to hold you as the information content provider and not as the provider of an interactive computer service, which you remain, but that's in this kind of concepting, but that's essentially a red herring that because you are now providing information content, because there is some breadth in this definition that says, hey, if you do it in part, and if it just results in the development of information, if you make your site look like a specific thing, then maybe you should still be liable for what is being said there. It's a possibility. It's not a good argument. It's largely inaccurate. And that's why a number of folks that are concerned with this aren't resting their hats on this concept of publisher or uh, platform because it's not a great argument. And in particular, this section C2A reads so specifically against that concept that it would make a, a very, very difficult case to bring before the normal court, before an appeals court, before the Supreme Court, that it's probably not a useful method of trying to make things better if you feel like you are put upon by YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or whoever it is that you've got a problem with. Which is why our favorite senator, Senator Hawley of Missouri, has put forth in the Senate a new bill, which he called the Ending Support for Internet Censorship Act, a major update to the way big tech companies are treated under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. We are going to take a look at the language of this bill, uh, but he describes it himself here in this press release. Senator Hawley's legislation removes the immunity big tech companies receive under Section 230 unless they submit to an external audit that proves by clear and convincing evidence that their algorithms and content removal practices are politically neutral. Senator Hawley's legislation does not apply to small and medium-sized tech companies. With Section 230, quoting Senator Hawley here, tech companies get a sweetheart deal that no other industry enjoys, complete exemption from traditional publisher liability in exchange for providing a forum free of political censorship. 
said Senator Hawley. Unfortunately and unsurprisingly, big tech has failed to hold up its end of the bargain. And they got, now, we just read the law. So you can see the sleight of hand that this press release from a senator, a sitting member of Congress, actually makes. He suggests that Section 230 exists, and they get this exemption for providing a forum free of political censorship. And while we did look at the recitals and say diversity of a political viewpoint was important, it was never an exchange. It was never a quid pro quo concept in that law. And perhaps that's a mistake in the people writing it if Senator Hawley were sitting in Congress in the 90s, but it's not what it says right now. And so he's trying to change essentially the state of play with his law, but he's also trying to change the history of what the current state of the law is. And that's why we're doing these things like virtual legality to talk about what the actual truth is so that we can better understand what's happening in the news and what's happening with laws like this. He continues, there's a growing list of evidence that shows big tech companies making editorial decisions to censor viewpoints they disagree with. Even worse, the entire process is shrouded in secrecy because these companies refuse to make their protocols public. This legislation simply states that if the tech giants want to keep their government granted immunity, they must bring transparency and accountability to their editorial processes and prove that they don't discriminate. So he's trying to say, hey, they'd already agreed not to do political censorship. This is just trying to bring it out into the sun. Obviously, we just talked about why that isn't the case. But let's take a look at what the law actually does, because it's problematic in and of itself. So here we have a bill uh, ending support for Internet Censorship Act that has been presented uh, by Senator Hawley. It says political neutrality and content moderation. Section 230 will be amended by adding the following. Uh, the paragraphs one and two, which is the limitations on liability that we just talked about, shall not apply in the case of a covered company unless the company has, in effect, an immunity certification from the Federal Trade Commission under subparagraph B, which we'll talk about, that the company does not moderate information provided by other information content providers in a manner that is biased against a political party, political candidate, or political viewpoint. So let's... Let's unpack that just a second here. What he's saying is he wants to have the Federal Trade Commission sign off on the unbiasedness of every social media giant in order for them to get the benefit of Section 230, the law as it exists today. And in order to prove that they aren't biased against a political party, political candidate, or political viewpoint, they're going to have to submit to an audit of the Federal Trade Commission. How often? We see here in paragraph B, subsection I, subsection I again, that the commission shall certify any provider of an interactive computer service that is a covered company or anticipates that it will become a covered company within the next two years and applies to the commission for a certification and proves to the commission by clear and convincing evidence, which is a fairly high standard, uh, that the provider does not. And during the two-year period preceding the date on which the provider submits the application for certification did not, moderate information provided by another information content provider in a politically biased manner. We'll take a look at that again in just a second. But the concepting here is essentially that Senator Hawley would have the government step in and essentially do an analysis of these companies to determine whether or not they had violated what this certification is. If we go further in the law, and we're not necessarily going to go that far, the Federal Trade Commission is granted the authority to get these certifications done, sure, but then to also enforce them and to look at whether or not there were lies made in having the certifications put forth and essentially analyzing what YouTube is doing with its moderation policies or Facebook is 
in a way that is very, very nebulous because what the language actually says is that you can't moderate if it's based on a political viewpoint. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine really anything in life that couldn't be described by the right-thinking person or a person bringing a lawsuit, or in this case, the Federal Trade Commission, as a political viewpoint. Whether or not you want to drive to work is a political viewpoint if you believe that there are environmental issues that should require you to ride a bike. Whether or not you want to have your kids go to school on Saturdays is a political viewpoint. Whether or not you want to use tutors to help them learn things outside of the public school programs. All these various things that you could do, that you could advocate, that you could talk about on Facebook. Whether or not it's about Christmas or about the way that you spend your money at Starbucks or whether you drive your car on the street. If Facebook decides X, Y, and Z should be moderated, and if it looks to someone at the Federal Trade Commission who isn't regularly engaged in these conversations with you or your family or your people on Twitter or whatever it might be, that the Federal Trade Commission decides, oh, that moderation wasn't uh, unbiased because it represented trying to squelch a specific quote-unquote political viewpoint, then they can take away all of your liability protection. And in so doing, that would make Facebook or YouTube or Google or whomever completely liable for the statements that are made on their website. In other words, if you've ever been in the YouTube comments, if you've been on the YouTube comments to virtual legality, you've probably seen some things that aren't necessarily uh, fully great that could potentially be libelous or slanderous. I've seen things said about me on Twitter or on social media or elsewise that if I were so inclined, I could bring a claim against that person. But if Twitter or YouTube or Google or Facebook lost this certification of a government body, then not only could I bring that claim against the person that said something bad about me on Twitter, I could bring it against Twitter itself. And in so doing, it would be a problem for all of these websites, all of this social media. And you can talk about whether or not you think that's a good idea or not. But the right way to think about whether that's a good idea or not is not to have some kind of government agency decide whether you're being politically neutral. It's to decide whether Section 230 is a good idea or not. And a lot of people have said, hey, if you remove Section 230, then the Facebooks and Twitters and social medias of the world would basically have to lock down almost everything because they can't afford to have this liability. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's not. But kind of splitting it this way, where you have an arbiter in Washington, D.C., deciding whether you have done something in a politically neutral way, well, that tends to sound like something that we got rid of uh, quite a few years ago, and that's the Fairness Doctrine. And I've brought up the Wikipedia page for the Fairness Doctrine in case you're not familiar with it, but I'll read from the Wikipedia entry here for just a bit. The Fairness Doctrine of the United States Federal Communication Commission, introduced in 1949, so just after World War II, was a policy that required the holders of broadcast licenses both to present controversial issues of public importance and to do so in a manner that was, in the FCC's view, again, government arbiter, honest, equitable, and balanced. The Fairness Doctrine had two basic elements. It required broadcasters to devote some of their airtime to discussing controversial matters of public interest and to air contrasting views regarding those matters. Stations were given wide latitude as to how to provide contrasting views. It could be done through news segments, public affairs shows, or editorials. The doctrine did not require equal time for opposing views, but required that contrasting viewpoints be presented. The equal time stuff was more about political campaigns, uh, and, and that's uh, a while back. But this rule, the fairness doctrine, was gotten rid of in the 80s. And who, was, who, who got rid of it? The Republicans, the Reagan uh, authority, really. On August 5th, 1987, under FCC Chairman Dennis R. Patrick, the FCC abolished the doctrine by a four to nothing vote. 
The FCC suggested in that case that because of the many media voices in the marketplace, the doctrine was likely to be deemed unconstitutional, stating that the intrusion by government into the content of programming occasioned by the enforcement of the fairness doctrine restricts the journalistic freedom of broadcasters and actually inhibits the presentation of controversial issues of public importance to the detriment of the public and the degradation of the editorial prerogative of broadcast journalists. Now, that's particularly journalistically facing, but it's the same kind of issue that we see on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook today. If they don't have Section 230, if they don't have that protection, if they can be made liable for any random YouTube comment that appears on their service, then they're going to have a significant problem with liability. Their business models are going to have to change wildly. And I think everybody can understand that in all likelihood, we would have a less vibrant kind of communications platform. That doesn't mean you have to like what YouTube or Facebook or Twitter is doing with their businesses. In fact, a lot of episodes of virtual legality this year have been about how they're using their terms and conditions in a way that I feel is detrimental to their users, how users can better understand how those terms and conditions are affecting their use of the service, and, and how we can start pushing on Twitter and Facebook and who else we want to try to use those terms and conditions in a way that is more beneficial to their entire consumer base over what they think is, is right that might not be agreed upon by other people. But that doesn't mean that a law should say that the FTC of all folks should come in and be able to determine whether they have been uh, uh, unbiased. Uh, and in fact, we see here again that in 1987, when this happened, Congress attempted to preempt the FCC decision to codify the Fairness Doctrine, and the legislation was vetoed by President Ronald Reagan. This was a concept in the 1980s that was a very Republican concept. We don't want to have a Fairness Doctrine. And then later on, it was shown to be something that, that the Democrats wanted in the early 2000s, primarily the Wikipedia entry peer posits because of the prevalence of conservative talk radio, uh, but that the Republicans generally opposed because they didn't want to have to deal with any kind of presses upon their talk radio presence. So we can see here when we talk about Senator Hawley's bill, this is not an area of extreme principle from the Democrat side or from the Republican side. It's really a question of whether or not you feel like the current law is benefiting your ideas as a, as a politician. And I'm not saying that to disparage Senator Hawley or politicians in general. They get paid to do uh, what they do as representatives of the party and the people that they represent. So that's fine with me, but it doesn't mean that we can't talk about why it's a stupid idea. So to have an, a new wave internet fairness doctrine under the purview of the Federal Trade Commission is probably as stupid as it comes in terms of these laws. And that's saying something as I did actually already review and talk about the stupidity of the loot box law. Uh, going forward, we also see how he defines politically biased moderation, which is not actually the defined term that he uses in the act, but that's something that could be cleaned up as part of the House uh, redlining process. The moderation practices of a provider of an interactive computer service are politically biased if the provider moderates information provided by other information content providers in a manner that is designed to negatively affect a political party, political candidate, or political viewpoint, or disproportionately restrict or promote access to or the availability of information from a political party, political candidate, or political viewpoint. Shadow banning, things like that. Keeping specific people's voices down. But again, we have the same exact issue with what, a, what, what this means. When you're talking about political viewpoints, I think you can actually define things like candidates and campaigns and things and maybe get away with it on an, on an easier level. You could actually say, all right, if they are holding back algorithmically these specific campaigns, these specific people running for office, 
maybe you can make a bright line rule that could actually be enforced under a law like this. When you start talking about political viewpoints and it has no end and it has no defined term for what a political viewpoint might be in this law, then you start talking about bringing in the entirety of life, the entirety of concepts, of psychology, of everything that somebody might talk about and having the FTC look over these places' shoulders and say, for every moderation decision they make, which is thousands and tens of thousands, probably per day, uh, given their size. But to, to actually apply that and say, well, you appear to be disparaging political viewpoint X, which maybe YouTube or Facebook doesn't even think of as a political viewpoint, or maybe you or I wouldn't think of as a political viewpoint, then you lose all of this liability protection. And now we can bring in an enforcement action against that random guy that said that bad thing in that comment to that YouTube video six months ago. Well, then I think that's a problem. And I also think it's a problem just for business in general because they don't know when that liability would be removed. They don't know when there would be a problem in the future. And so that makes this a bad law, regardless of how you feel about Section 230 in and of itself. Um, and then I don't know that we really need to go on a lot further here. They do make an exception for business necessity, which essentially says as long as it's not political, if it's in favor of your business, we're going to give you an exception to this law, which is a nice feeling. It's a nice thought. It's a nice emotion. But again, it adds another layer of ambiguity. Okay. So the FTC has now determined that you've made a moderation decision that negatively impacts a specific political viewpoint. And then you can counter by saying, well, that was a business necessity. And then they can say, well, it looks like it was aimed at a political viewpoint, which again is brought into the definition of things that aren't business necessities. It becomes a whole mess. It becomes a whole morass and nobody knows what's going on. Finally, we see here in the law in and of itself that they actually say that covered company is not going to include folks uh, of a specific size, that they are aiming this only at the big folks. It says the term covered company means a provider of an interactive computer service uh, other than an organization described in Section 501C of the Internal Revenue Code of 1986, which is essentially charities, uh, that at any time during the most recent 12-month period had more than 30 million active monthly users had more than 300 million active monthly users globally. The first one was for the United States uh, or had more than $500 million in global annual revenue. And I will tell you this, this is a personal position as much as anything else. But if you have to take your law and you have to aim it only at a specific group that's of a certain size, uh, that means it's probably a bad idea. Uh, and if you're trying to specifically allow folks that are smaller, it's very difficult for me to understand how these thresholds were established. Why 30 million active monthly users? Why not 25 million? Why not 40 million? Same with 300 million, same with $500 million. The idea when you're pat trying to pass a law like this in a senatorial seat is that you're trying to get enough people on board. And one of the things that you have to say if you're in Senator Hawley's position is that this is not going to impact small business. This isn't going to impact people that are trying to get into social media, that are trying to form new platforms, and we're going to still afford them Section 230 protection. But if you're looking at this and you say, well, okay, but you know, psychologically, from a philosophical standpoint, what would give the right to somebody that has 25 million active users? Why is it okay with you for them to disparage political viewpoints or political candidates or political parties, but not the site that has 30 million active monthly users? How, if your philosophy is that Section 230 protection should only be afforded to those that are presenting a neutral platform, what reasonable standard, what fundamental principle are you advocating that allows for smaller companies to get away with this thing that bigger companies can't? And the answer is there is no principle. They're simply aiming it at people that they view as small enough in contingency, small enough in uh, folks that would defend them on a kind of 
congressional level that they could get a law like this passed. Unfortunately, it's exactly uh, uh, how we have talked about it in this video. And that's now we've got Republicans that because they view uh, in this case that they are being put upon by liberal social media sites, by internet tech giants. They are looking for a fairness doctrine just as their liberal counterparts were looking for a fairness doctrine against conservatives on radio and on things like that. And unfortunately, that's what we've got right now. That's Section 230 in a nutshell as of July 2019. And this concept, this discussion is not likely to go away anytime soon. So I hope this video was helpful to just kind of discuss what it is that the law does why what you are probably seeing in the Washington Post and elsewhere is not a terribly useful description of what Section 230 does. And that does happen when you've got laws and rules and regulations that take on this kind of culture war political standpoint that in all cases, go see the law for yourself. Go actually read the rules so that you can interpret what you're seeing from editorials, from opinion pages, from even people like me, so that you can understand what's going on better and so that you can help be a part of that conversation in a way that is, is useful. Uh, but if you've got thoughts on Section 230, if you've got thoughts on liability for social media, for tech giants, or, or for just in general in laws and how I've interpreted them, what we've discussed on this video or in this podcast today, Please leave a comment in the description to this video. I'm, I love to get those comments. I love to discuss these issues with folks. And right now, YouTube has Section 230 immunity. So while I don't recommend slandering or libeling anyone, YouTube is not going to be sued for it if you do. That could change. Who knows what happens with Senator Hawley's bill in the future, although I think it has a long road to success and is very likely to be tabled and set aside and put in a drawer somewhere. Uh, but otherwise, if you like this, please like this video. Please subscribe to this channel. We are discussing these kinds of things all the time, generally with a bent more towards the video game industry and some fun stuff like that. But also when these news items pop up, when they relate to terms and conditions, to technology, to information technology systems like Facebook, like Google, like Twitter, we do discuss those here on this channel as well. If you like this, please share it around. I can't get everywhere on the internet. I have a day job as a contract lawyer and talking to companies about forming and funding them and, and things like that. So share it around to who you think might be interested in this. Uh, otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it on a podcast service, thank you so much for listening. Please do review it on the podcast service that you listen to it on. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. <laughs>